if you've never seen Home Alone, you don't get any of those references, so I'm sorry if that's you. And in the 90s, like, it was so funny, but then you realize how mean it was. Like, Kevin was kind of mean. He's a little harsh. Um, man, it's good to be here. So excited. It's the Christmas season. Uh, God is doing cool stuff in our church, in your lives, and it's, you know, as a pastor, I get to hear a lot more of the stories than maybe, you know, you know the average attender, but I just want to tell you, man, God is at work. Um, I want to let you know that uh, Christmas, uh, the Christmas services are going to be so fun. Sunday, we're having church like normal, but we're all going to be hopefully wearing beautifully ugly uh, Christmas sweaters, so come ready. It's going to be pretty fun. There might be awards. Um, and then Christmas Eve is just a, I think it's going to be an incredible opportunity um, to invite people into the story of Jesus. People, maybe, maybe people who have been far from God, or maybe people who have run away from God, but I think it's one of those seasons where we can bring people into the story of Jesus and maybe look at the hope that's found in Christ in a world that's, I think in a world that really is struggling, we can bring hope to people's hearts and lives. Amen? All right, so um, we are going to enjoy the screams of the children um, together today because they're having a blast. I lo- if you don't know this, we have an incredible team of people that work with um, our children's director, and they do an awesome job. I'm so grateful. My daughter's six, my son's two, and I get the benefit of that incredible uh, Bible teaching for our, to our kids. And so uh, if you got kids that are up there, uh, they have some people who really care for them and love them. Now, um, I'm going to just, I'm going to jump in, but before we get to the scripture, I just wanted to start with a story. My wife uh, had a, her birthday yesterday, and it was pretty awesome. I won't tell you how old, I won't tell you that, she'll get mad at me, um, but I will say that it's definitely under 40 and definitely above 18, okay? So I want to make sure you guys know that. Um, so me and my daughter got together a few weeks ago, and uh, my daughter was like, let's do a surprise party. She's always heard about surprise parties, never been a part of one. She's seen them on TV. Uh, and she's like, I want to do a surprise party. So we started talking about what that could look like. And I was like, okay, if we do this, we have to keep it secret. And we, we started talking about family members that we thought could keep a good secret and the family members that couldn't. So we started planning around that a little bit. You know, how do you deal with the people who don't know how to, you know, keep it secret? And then uh, we talked about the food. We talked about where we're going to do it, how we're going to do it, how we're going to plan. And then we came to this, like, uh, this, really this ethical conundrum for my daughter. And she was talking about, I said, okay, Novella, you're going you're gonna to have to keep it secret. You've got to keep it safe, right? And she, she was like, so I can't tell mommy? I was like, no, it's a surprise. But you're the one who wanted to, it's a surprise birthday party. No, I know. I want it to be a surprise, but, but we really should tell mommy. And I was like, no, that, that defeats the purpose of the surprise birthday party. So you got to keep it secret. Okay. So I should lie to mom? You know, I'm a pastor, right? <laughs> Absolutely you should. Like, this is the one. We, we need to lie to your mom. It's totally fine. So if it's, for the, if it's for a good thing, we can lie to mom and not tell her about it. That's right. And, um, and I was, she was like, so I, I, I can do that with you for things? No, no, you can't do that. 
with me. I was like having this like moral argument, like what are you, some moral genius? Should, her name's Novella, we should have named her like uh, Sacravella or Socrates or something. She, uh, we were having this moral ethical argument and then uh, I was like, so I'm gonna trust you to keep the secret. Okay, dad, we're gonna keep the secret. And she did so good, like over the week, two weeks that we were like, it was build up, like every night, like me and my wife go in, we, we sing Jesus Loves You, we pray with her and then we leave and she's like, hey dad, could you stay for a second? So Sarah would go and she'd be like, Surprise party. <laughs> she was so excited. It'd be nights where she'd just like be sitting there and then she'd come out like I'm reading or doing something. She's like, Dad, I can't sleep. I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, surprise party. She was just so, so excited. And about uh, a week into it, week and a half into it, like we sang and then we prayed and then we were leaving the room. Um, I, I, I didn't hear anything. And the next night, um, uh, same thing. I didn't hear anything from her. And the third night, like I, I, we sang, we prayed, and then we were heading out. And I looked back and I said, hey, Novella, surprise party. And I winked at her and she's like, oh, I forgot. <laughs> Finally, when we did, it was this little, little surprise party. And uh, we came into the room. I might, need a, I might need a microphone again, guys, and that's totally fine. We had this uh, going crazy in the last service. It was like this animal, like, yelling at me the whole time. So hopefully we can, uh, we can get another mic, mic up here. But uh, we walked into the surprise party and uh, opened the door, and, and my wife didn't know anything, but Novella was just like, she didn't know what was going to happen. She didn't know what was supposed to, she just knew it was supposed to be amazing. And so we walk into the, the, the space and all, you know, the people that are there are just like, surprise. And my wife's like, amazing. My daughter was like, ah, and she was just like, in, in just enraptured in this moment. Thank you so much, Sam. Um, we'll see how far we can go with this. And if it continues, I'll switch to that. Um, but birthdays are a big day and big deal. And our family on birthdays, we like to talk about like the birth stories, not the anything gross or just like the, 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 the birth story, like what, what happened around this? Like it's a, it's a day that like families are like growing and changing and new personalities are coming into the mix. And so Sarah's story, we always, you know, we'll hear it from Stan or Chris, they'll tell it, but Stan tells it probably best. He, he has a, cause he had kind of a bird's eye view of everything and he tells a really good story. And part of Sarah's story, she was born in Papua, New Guinea which is not in America, just in case you didn't know that. And uh, her parents were missionaries. Uh, they had to travel like from a really high elevation village they were living in. They drove down, I think it was Unkurumpa, which is a great name for a city. I believe that was where she was born. And when she was born, um, she was born breech. So they had to do a cesarean. And so uh, they, they gave Chris, uh, you know, they anesthetized her and uh, knocked her out and, and then uh, they pulled out Sarah and Stan said it was just like this amazing, miraculous moment and they, and they put her on a fish scale because that's what you do in New Guinea, Papua New Guinea. They put her on a literal fish scale to weigh her and uh, Stan uh, said it was the most beautiful, amazing moment in his life. He said this was his little princess and so the Hebrew word for princess is Sarah. That's where she gets her name. And he held her in his, his arm, he, like a football, he said. It was kind of like her head's here. He just walked around, and they were waiting for Chris to come, you know, come back to herself after being anesthetized. And, um, and he was like, he was like um, he's like, Chris, this is the most precious gift. And before he could even finish a sentence, she was like, let me tell you what hell was like. <laughs> it was this 
moment. And when he heard more of the story, it was the worst thing you ever heard. They, they anesthetized her just enough so that she couldn't move or speak, but she felt every cut of the knife. And, and in, when he's telling this story, you know, like the whole family's kind of, like you, are cringing at this point, and, you know, Sarah's mom is cringing at this point. It's what she lived through. And she was like, okay, after this, every birth is going to be in Australia, which their next son was born in Australia. And, um, and Stan always, he says, uh, out of great pain, out of terrible pain, great beauty came into our lives. Isn't that a beautiful story? You know, like, out of this hardship... Sarah comes into being and so we're so grateful for our mom you know I should thank her every day like thank you for you know putting up with that terrible moment but we have, we have Sarah and she's alive um, because she almost died of uh, she got into some pills for for um, uh, what's it called malaria it's malaria pills and almost lost her when she was really little and so like the the fact that she's with us is this miraculous story in the midst of pain and and trouble you know and um I want to look at the story of Jesus. It's this birth story, right? The story about birth. It, the, the thing about this story is it's so human. A lot of times when we take the story of Christ, we, we try to like, you know, sometimes we make it so religious and ethereal and, you know, div, you know, the divinity of God, which is important. God's divine. But Jesus was born as a human, like in this, in the mess of our earth and our world. And so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read through this story, and I, I, I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to do a lot of commentary. I just want to let the story hit us. And then after I read the story, I want to I just give some theological reflections about the story. And I want to take the stain, as a friend of mine says, take the stained glass off of the text. Take kind of our political, social, religious glasses off. And let the story speak to us, maybe from some different angles. And it, let it challenge us, depending on your perspective, your background, your religious, political, social background. Let, it, let the story of, of Jesus' birth challenge us and encourage us today. Amen? And so in the story, you could call this story God with us. So Matthew starts it off, he says, Jesus, one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So how is God with us in this story? How does this story start out? And I, I want to let you know, like, uh, if you're new to Whitewater, you've been coming, this is going to be a, a time, our, our, the sermon today is going to go heavy for a little bit and I'll be real for a bit. And then we're going to come up by the end of service and we're going to celebrate some really cool things. But let's let the story of Jesus speak to us today. Sound good? We're going to be in um, Matthew chapter 2. This is the story of God with us Reading uh, verses 1 through 16. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. So the wise men were known as astrologers. They weren't Jewish. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone else in Jerusalem, meaning the, the other leaders, the religious leaders and political leaders were upset. Verse 4 says, he called the meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. So they did a little Bible study to find out where Jesus was. They had no clue until the wise men came, had a Bible study, figured it out. And then Herod called the private meeting with the wise men and learned from them uh, the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that uh, I can go and worship him too. You think he's pretty excited to go worship Jesus? After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was, and uh, when the star, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house, and they saw the child with his mother and Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him, and when they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, those might not be popular gifts nowadays, but back then those are pretty expensive gifts. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. The escape to Egypt happens here. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, like that night, Joseph got Mary and Jesus and got him up and they left for Egypt immediately with the child and with Mary and his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. And Herod was furious, it says, when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. And he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, based on the wise men's report about when the star had first appeared. I'm going to switch microphones. Now, that story becomes very familiar to us. It's very familiar to me. I've grown up in church, and those of you who have grown up in, with any religious education or you've been around religion, like, we become very familiar with this. And many of us who might not be from a you know, religious background, we're here, and we're letting this story hit us. And what I want to do is I want to talk about the way God is with us in Jesus, <clears throat> how the compassionate, loving God of the universe is with us and really ask, how are we learning to be with him? So let me just take you through a few turns in the story. If we take off the stained glass, take off our biases and our lenses of religion and uh, uh, social circumstances and political circumstances, let's just look at this story and let it speak a little bit. So here's a few re- uh, theological reflections. The first is, here's a story about a vulnerable mom who conceives a fatherless son from the world's perspective. And she's alone at first. In the story, if you didn't know, Joseph, he was just going to cut Mary loose and let her go and be quiet and kind. But that was, for her, that meant life was going to be very tough, very difficult to be a mom in that culture without a father. 
And no one's going to believe her story. Joseph struggled believing her story until an angel came to him. Eventually, she gain, Jesus gains an adoptive father, a foster father, Joseph. Joseph ends up deciding to opt in to raise a son who isn't his biologically. Another turn in the story is Jesus is homeless at birth. Homeless at birth. There's no room for him in the inn, I'm, let alone the world. Like No one was willing to take Jesus in. And that's part of his story. And, and in his ministry, he was often homeless. Another turn in the story is that, uh, that Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they were, they were evicted and hunted from their own country by the rulers of their own country, Herod and the religious leaders. And, and these leaders who were hunting Jesus... Herod and his family, and then the religious rulers and leaders, so people from the religious groups like the Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, religious sects at the time, um, groups. They were hunting Jesus, trying to kill Jesus when he was a baby, and that same family, I think it was the grandson of the Herod who tried to kill Jesus in this birth story, his grandson was the one who ultimately did kill Jesus. And the religious leaders who were trying to kill him were the ones who helped kill him when he was an adult. Isn't that interesting? Another turn in the story is Jesus and his family become, an immig- they become immigrants from Israel to Africa. And I might add they, they were undocumented immigrants in the story. And they had to flee to Africa, which is Egypt. And, and in his story... Uh, the, the family's flight to Egypt, to Africa, running from their own people, is funded by some traveling astrologers. Think about that. And then when he left, when Jesus was taken from his, his town of birth, the place he was born, all the babies under two are then killed by the Jewish ruler. So this is all going on in this one opening story. That's a lot going on, right? And when I read this, this challenges me as I read it, as I let the story hit me. So let me just give you some, what I, what I see as some good news in the turns of this story. Sound good? We'll just go through that. And then I just want to talk about what our church is and can be in the world as we learn to uh, serve Jesus and follow Jesus together. So... God's compassionate work for and through vulnerable people. Check this out. Mary was a pregnant, vulnerable mom. Do we agree? Very vulnerable. Her faith was amazing, but she was so vulnerable. But here's the good news. God never abandons moms who conceive without an earthly dad to raise their kids. No matter what circumstance it's in whether it was a, a, a decision that they wish they could change or a decision they're happy about or, or something that was done to them and now they're living with the results of someone's, we'll call it sin. Something that was, some harm that was brought to them. You get what I'm saying? God never abandons those vulnerable women. God is with them. Amen? That's good news, is it not? Let's talk about more good news in the, I have a friend who always says that God likes to work in the ordeal, not just the ideal. 
And sometimes Christians want to only serve people. Religious people only want to serve people if it's in the ideal. But God works in the ordeal. So Joseph was, became the adopted father. He was the adoptive foster father. And Joseph opted in. The good, that, and the good news here is that um, people who aren't sure who their real dad is, God is looking after them and he's with them and he doesn't abandon them. God sends adoptive fathers. Like that's when you know God's at work when, when someone's heart is adoptive and, and loving and, and embracing of people. And, and Joseph uh, was the adoptive father. And the good news here is if there's anybody here who has the heart of an adoptive parent and has brought someone in, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it was a stranger you didn't know, you just have that heart. You're, you're learning to walk in the ways of Joseph. And Joseph was an amazing father. There's good news for those who have had their family lost and taken from them in some circumstance. And they've been a foster kid or they've been a a foster child. Like there's good news because God sends people to love you when you are vulnerable. And some of you have been sent to be in Joseph's shoes to love those who are in the place of Jesus. Amen? That's good news. Joseph, just so you know, most likely died during the lifetime of Jesus because it was very unusual for a a person like Jesus to be doing ministry and having to look after his mom and having um, uh, his disciples help him look after his mom and his brothers looking after his mom. And there's no mention of the husband. In Jewish culture, that usually meant that the the father had died and and was somehow out of the picture. And, And we know Joseph was a good man, so he probably had died. That's kind of the way the Jewish writers would write that into the text. And so Jesus, because he's the oldest in that culture, would have to take care of his mom until he's, you know, in his 30s, until he was, um, you know, uh, able to have other brothers or other people help take care of her. That was his responsibility. A lot of people don't realize that when they read the text of Scripture. So Joseph most likely had died. But here's, here's the good news. We have all been given a family in Christ. All of us. Homeless at birth talk about some good news that we see in this. He was homeless at birth, homeless and itinerant in his ministry. No room in the world, let alone the, uh, the inn, was ready for him. They had to be, Jesus was born and placed in a manger, a place where animals are kept. And those who have no home or feel like they ha- they're not at home in this world, Jesus gives you an eternal home. He's given you an eternal family to take care of you. And Jesus, crea- he understands what homelessness is like. His family understands it. That was part of the fabric of the narrative of his family. His village would have known that. He would have known that growing up. It would have been written into the fabric of his life. So no wonder he served so many people who were hurting and homeless out of, out of his ministry. Amen? That's good news. And then there's a story of this undocumented immigrant family fleeing from their home country of Israel and then going into Egypt, into Africa. And those who are looking for a new country have been given a new country. Those who are looking for a new kingdom are given a new kingdom. Like, like Jesus was in a scenario where like the, it was unfair, unrighteous, wrong, the leadership he was born into at the time. They were protecting their power. The religious leaders were, they worshiped the Bible instead of worshiping Jesus. Think about that. Christians... They, the religious rulers were worshiping the Bible 
instead of worshiping Jesus. And they used the Bible as an idol to worship so that they could get rid of the king because they didn't really want a king. They wanted to be king. And Herod had his power, and so he tried to protect his family's power by getting rid of Jesus. And so you see this idolatry of turning control and power, which we should use to serve people, um, both by the religious leaders and by Herod, the political Jewish religious leader. And Jesus is saved through all that. It's, it's really amazing. Um, this is an incredible story. And I, I should also mention that um, uh, his escape to Egypt was funded by the astrologers and Gentiles. And I, some of you guys might have notes. You might want to, if you want to, you can jot these down. He was funded by astrologers and Gentiles. Think about this. These, these are like wise men, right? They're, they're seeking and searching God. They don't really know who God is fully that we can tell. They're, Gentiles means non-Jewish, non-worshiping of, of God, Yahweh, their God. And, but they're, they're trying to find Jesus. They're trying to see him and they seek him. And the Bible teaches us those who seek will find. And there's good news here because while the religious leaders and the uh, Herod were trying to use their power and use their Bible to get what they want and worship themselves rather than Jesus, here are some powerful leaders who aren't even, believe, we wouldn't consider them believers or Christians or, or God followers, right? But they're starting to move toward Jesus. They use their wealth and their power to worship and fund Jesus' ministry before it's even started. Their worship saves, probably funded their trip to Africa. Isn't that unbelievable? And... Um, well, let me keep going here. Babies who were killed. There's these babies who were killed. Baby boys in Bethlehem died for Jesus' sake before Jesus could die for their sake. Do you see that? The good news is this. For those who have lost their babies too early and sometimes unjustly, God cares about them. He sent his son for them. And even with these babies in Bethlehem who died for Jesus' sake before he could die for their sake, Jesus was a baby who escaped an evil tyrant. He survived only to be killed when he's an adult. But here's the beauty of the story of the, the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that when he died on the cross, he was put in a tomb. But the good news isn't that he stayed in the tomb, but that he walked out of that thing. So that not just every person, not just every adult in here, could walk into a, a life eternal with God, but that every unborn and born little one who dies prematurely, dies unjustly, could walk in eternity with him. God loves the vulnerable. Amen? He loves the vulnerable. He loves the people. He loves the ones who go unseen, the, the stories that are never told, but God knows and he loves them. He loves them. And in the story, we see that Herod, um, think about this. Where have, we, where have we seen a story in scripture where um, there's a tyrant who kills children under two years old, Jewish children under two years old? The Exodus story, Egypt, Pharaoh. Now, here's what I think Matthew is trying to get us to reflect on. 
And then I want to, I want to just, I want to give us a little vision and then we're going to, we're going to go into some celebration mode, but I want to get very like, this is, I, I don't think it's more biblical than this. So come with, if you can come with me on this. So Pharaoh and Egypt are the last place we've seen a tyrant try to kill Jewish boys under two years old. They're trying to, and Moses was almost killed in that, if you know the story of Moses, but he survived. Herod has become the new Pharaoh. The religious leaders have become the new magicians. Remember Pharaoh's magicians who resisted God's work? Think about the God's religious people whose job is to know God and love God and love people have become the very thing they've hated. Herod, who's Jewish, the religious leaders who are Jewish have become the very thing that enslaved them. And Israel, because of this, have become the new Egypt. And so Jesus has to flee from his own nation, from rulers that know the story of the Exodus, that know the story of Pharaoh. And because they've turned their Bible, their Bibles and their power and their policies into idols, they have become the enslavers of God's people. And so all of a sudden, verse 15 takes on new significance when it says, and they stayed in Egypt until Herod's death, until the new Pharaoh's death. This is fulfilled that the Lord, uh, that what the Lord had spoken uh, through the prophet, this is Old Testament, I called my son out of Egypt. So there's two layers of meaning here. Jesus was sent to Africa, to Egypt, so that God could call him as the new Moses to free his people. But there's also another layer of meaning here. That Jesus was called out of Egypt in this, in this sense, Israel, Herod, the religious leaders have become the new Egypt. And Jesus had to be freed and called out of his own people because they had, mis- they had mistaken their job. They thought their job was to like rule and protect themselves, protect their power, protect their people. But God had designed his people to be a blessing. So Jesus is saved from his own people so that he can go back and save his people. Do you see it? Can I get an amen? I think that's pretty amazing. So in this story, it challenges our political, our religious, our social understanding when we kind of take the stained glass off it, doesn't it? We see that if Jesus, think about this, if Jesus had been born in these situations that I just went through, in our culture, in our day and age, I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus would be seen as an unwanted pregnancy and an unwanted baby and a refugee in our day and age. The question about the God who is with us isn't whether God is with us. The question is, are we with him? Are we with him? Do we let him challenge us? Like, do, do, we, do we value our Bibles, which are good things? I love, like, they couldn't, Jesus couldn't have been found by the wise men without the Bible. We need the Bible. Bible's good. But the Bible is a sign that's pointing to Jesus. Amen? And we're not supposed to worship the Bible. We are designed to worship Jesus. And the wise men were wiser than all the wise uh, scholars of Israel at that time because they fell and worshiped the king rather than the letters about the king. And if Jesus is with us, 
Are we moving our lives toward him? Are we moving toward the star? Are we moving toward him? Or are we distracted? Are we letting power and policies and political beliefs drive us rather than the compassion of God? I mean, think about this story. All these people with different callings, different backgrounds, like wise men, astrologers from a different nation that don't yet know Jesus. We have shepherds who enter. We have Mary and Joseph, these insignificant people, seemingly vulnerable people, vulnerable women um, all joining together in this story where God is using them. And they probably all had different political beliefs and different backgrounds and different stories. And yet they all came together around the true king. The end of Matthew, Jesus tells the story and I think it reveals like the question of are we with God? And, and he basically, Jesus tells this story and he says, hey, there's this king and he divides the, the, the goat and the, sh- the sheep. And he divides those who want to be with God and those who don't. And, and here's kind of how it goes. He says, um, the king said, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And he says this to them, um, for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me and I was in prison and you visited me. And as Jesus is telling the story, all the, all the people who think they're on you know, the good side, the good team, they're like, yes, you know, we, we serve you, Lord. We're like that. We get it. We serve because we love you and we love God. And then Jesus says the most astounding thing that no one would have expected in, the, in his day and age. He says this, And the king, uh, or when they respond, they say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you? People listening to Jesus telling this would be like, what? How did they not know they they were serving Jesus? How did they not know? But they go on and and these people say, but when did we see you thirsty and when did we give you something to drink? Or when when did we see you a stranger and not show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did, we, when did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the people listening to this, like, how did they not know they were serving God? Like, how did they not see him? This doesn't make sense. And then Jesus brings it to the core, brings it to the heart and says, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. I was with you. I was there. When you serve the vulnerable, you serve me. And it shouldn't surprise us that the king of kings, king of glory, who left his heavenly home to come to our world, born in a barn with vulnerable people, with leaders trying to kill him, having to escape as a refugee, when many people would have just given up in a world that was rejecting him, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus identifies with the vulnerable, the least and the lonely. Amen? So you didn't see me, but you were serving me. I was there. God is with us when we serve the vulnerable, even if we don't know. It's good to know like, and feel God's presence when we're serving him by serving others, but sometimes we don't even know it. And it's a heart of compassion that distinguishes the goat from the sheep. It's a heart that knows the heart of God, knows the heart of God well enough that they are able to love God and love people and know when they're loving people that God's presence is there. 
Now check out what he says to the, to the people who, who don't want to be with him, who don't have the Father's heart. The king's, he, he, he's turned to those on his left and says, away with you. Uh, he calls them cursed ones and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and the demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. And I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then they all replied, Lord, when did we, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in, in prison and not help you? When did we, when did we never see you? When, did we, when was the moment that we didn't realize and he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. It's like a cosmic episode of Undercover Boss, you know? This like scares the sheol out of pastors when they read this. That's the Hebrew word for hell, by the way. All that Herod and the religious had to do were have compassion and mercy. And they tried to chase Jesus down. They didn't get it. They couldn't see it. James 1.27 says, pure and genuine religion. We would call that whitewater uh, flourishing life with God. Real religion in the sight of God. The Father means, well, what does it mean? Caring for widows and orphans. It's compassion. The church is always, has always, and will always be its best when we're serving Jesus, following Jesus, and we look like Jesus. During the second century, the church grew and spread like wildfire in Egypt. It grew because women deacons, women leaders from the church, uh, would, were in the cities of Egypt and they would provide nursing mothers who sat in public squares, often under pagan statues, while other women went up and down the streets collecting unwanted babies that had been abandoned in the night. This is very common practice in ancient culture, Roman culture. And babies, they, 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 didn't, um, they didn't abort because they didn't have the capacity most of the time. They would leave their children out in the elements that they didn't want. Very common. And, it, and the church in Egypt and in other places grew and transformed the culture because women led and created a ministry of seeking and saving lost little ones, vulnerable children. Does it get more vulnerable than that? And these, these leaders, these women would bring them up, they would nurse them, bathe them, raise them. The church of Egypt responded by creating a ministry to seek and save lost children. Can I get an amen to that? The church is at its best when it's serving Jesus. The church was growing and changing its world, not because it had an awesome band, not because it had an awesome teacher, not because like there was an awesome thing to come gather, because the church was, was following Jesus, loving Jesus, serving Jesus, and serving their world. Foster care, um, the organization like Step by Step, like these are, we, we are partnering with people who are making an inc- a kingdom impact, amen? And I want to thank you as a church. We are a church that have been involved with, we threw this big Christmas party and we partnered with Olive Crest, a foster care organization, because we want to be a church that serves the vulnerable. And I, want, I just want to thank you. Thank you for being a church that serves 
the vulnerable, the broken. Allowing God to challenge you with the gospel. It's for the powerful and the powerless. God pulled in these magi, these wise men who had money and prestige and wealth, and they gave it to the king. He used a, 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 a young, vulnerable woman like Mary and her, her soon-to-be husband to raise the Son of God, not in like a palace, but in poverty. God wants to use each and every person. I just want to note that it took a team to serve and love Jesus, didn't it? From all these different backgrounds. Think about this church. Think about the people sitting around here, partnered together. We have foster parents who have given their lives to stand like Joseph stood, with children that, that belong to God, like they're God's children. He wants them back. He cares about them. He doesn't want us to be a church that cares more about the Bible than people. The Bible teaches us to love. It teaches us to live in the way of Jesus. Um, I want to thank those at all of Crest who are here. We're going to celebrate them in a moment. We're going to see a video that shows what we accomplished together and what we can accomplish together. But friends, this is the church being the church. And we're, we're not going to change our world more than, than how we change ourselves in following and loving Christ. Do you believe it? I want to leave you with this last encouragement. This coming week, um, we're going to have Christmas Eve services Monday and Tuesday. And I just see those as like an opportunity, kind of like a star. It's like an invitation to invite people into the story of Jesus. Whether they're like Gentile, non-believing, magi, wealthy, or they have very little and they're hurting and they're broken. It's our opportunity as a church to invite them to Christ, is it not? So I want to encourage you, like there's these cards near you. And if you just, to me this is a sacred moment, like to write names down that come to your heart and your mind. To begin praying for them, to bring them to Jesus. Bring them into his story. Let them know that they matter if they're hurt and they're broken. Let them know that that God can use them. You never know what God is going to do once he grabs a hold of somebody. You never know, like, the, the, the Josephs that are out there, like, that don't know their Joseph yet. That don't know their, their wise men that have come to help and serve and fund and take, like, serve the king. You, you, we just don't know. And do and, and you know that the, these names, Joseph, Mary, Her- you know, like, even the bad ones, like Herod, their names are written in here. And I want us to write da- names down that we're praying for, that God loves, that he sent his son for, that he wants to invite into his story. And there's, there's two of these cards. And I, want, I would encourage you to write one for you, put in your back pocket, put in your purse, bring it out of here, put in your, your purse, your, your man purse, or whatever you have. Carry it with you so you can pray for those faces, those hearts, those souls. And then, um, and then I would ask you to fill out another one, those same names, and just drop it in the plate because I personally want to be praying for your friends this week. I want my staff to be praying for your friends if you want to, you can just put their first name. I don't care. But I want to be praying with you and partnering with you. Let's be a church that brings people to Jesus this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for you. So grateful for my, the words of my friend, Bishop Julius. He told me this, this year is the first year they were going to really invite people in their, in their community in Africa to a Christmas service. They've never done that before. And Lord, thank you for the challenge you put out. The best gift 
that we could give Jesus on his birthday is a soul. And God, I just pray that our our church would continue to be a soul-winning church, helping people take step after step toward you. Not toward religion, not toward worshiping power or worshiping the Bible, but learning that when we follow you and when we see that you are in the scriptures and through the scriptures, that we aren't trying to hang on to power. We're not, we're not just trying to run away from power. We become power because the Holy Spirit's living in us. Jesus, we love you. Amen.